Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. I am your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth. So glad to have you guys back for another episode. I want to kick things off today by reading some reviews people have left. As people may or may not know, we're doing a contest right now. So the way to request an artist you want us to feature on the podcast is to go on Apple Podcasts and leave your request in a review, preferably with five stars. And at the end of this month, although T, we might end up extending this, we are going to go through and pick the artist with the most votes and do an episode on them soon. So go do that. Some of my favorites that have come along in the last week have been from Napoleon the Fourth, who wrote such an informative listen. Can't wait for Mariah Deep Dive. We had R.R. Webster on who said Ursher pretty please. We had T. Sino. Gotna, who said, I'm really eager to see more boy band episodes. We had DT in DC, who said he's desperate for a Taylor Swift dive. Heard that one before. And then we had M's2170, who said, a very enjoyable listening. Please do an Usher episode. So right now, Usher is kind of the front runner. So get on there and put your votes in. As usual, please follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V. I also want to quickly say that we're changing the format of the Discord slightly. So we're not going to do dedicated Discord chats anymore. It's going to be kind of an ongoing thing where you can pop in there. The link will be in the show notes and in my bios on social media. I'll also post them on stories. And you can just go in there whenever you want, pose a question. I'll get in there with people occasionally and we're just going to keep it as more of an open free-flowing sort of ongoing chat as opposed to a dedicated time so that's the new story on the discord make sure you check out the spotify playlist for this and all other episodes in the show notes and on social media and that's about it for me let's get into this week's episode which is a very fascinating deep dive into the career of one of the most misunderstood pop stars of the last 10 years kesha Kesha sits at a crucial nexus point for so many pop cultural cornerstones of the 2010s that it's safe to say that, musically and otherwise, she is a superlative star of that decade. She launched into public consciousness as the ultimate EDM-era party animal with the first number one hit of the decade, presenting herself as a fun-loving, garish party monster who found her clothes in the dumpster and raged all night covered in glitter. Yet her story and success is, for better and worse, tied to perhaps the most important pop producer and songwriter of the last 20 years, Dr. Luke. And before Me Too became a common parlance, she bravely came forward with explosive and harrowing allegations against him that presaged that movement, radically recontextualized her hit music, and set the stage for a wave of similar allegations against powerful men that would soon come. And yet she also reinvented herself in recent years as a different kind of pop star, a survivor who, in standing with the times, makes intimate, idiosyncratic music and has become a cult pop hero, both musically and in public imagination, who stands for something, being yourself in the face of homogeneity and standing up for what you believe in. Kesha's story is, at both its highs and lows, a true story of our times. Like 
Kesha, ever the wily self-mythologizer, claims she was born in 1987 in the Valley at a party. <laughs> True or not, she grew up in Nashville, never knowing her father and being raised by her mother, PB, a songwriter who'd had some success writing country hits for people like Dolly Parton, but never enough to ease the family's perpetual financial struggles. Both watching her mom make music and learning to make a lot out of a little became Kesha's calling cards. And after she started writing her own music as a teen, she eventually landed herself a record deal with superstar pop producer Dr. Luke, who immediately spotted her formidable songwriting abilities and goofy freewheeling personality. Kesha moved out to LA and languished in development hell with Luke for years before, in a last minute twist, he decided to throw her on the hook of rapper Flo Rider's Right Round which became a number one smash in 2009. Right Round's success led Luke to fast-track Kesha's debut album, Animal, a singular work of the era which built on Kesha's real biography as a proudly trashy reveler who loved life, drinking, and dancing all to glorious excess. The music was a potent combination of Kesha's goofy rapping, lavishly gaudy dance production from Luke, an unbridled use of autotune, and the massive and undeniable pop hooks they wrote together with the help of Luke's cadre of in-house songwriters. Perfectly suited for the moment, the formula was a sensation. Animal made Kesha a pop superstar and produced four hit singles, including the number one smash, TikTok. Kesha and Luke quickly followed up Animal's success with a companion EP, Cannibal which operated largely in the same musical vein and produced the number one empowerment anthem, We Are Who We Are, and the top 10 club banger, Blow. In this period, Kesha also wrote a comeback smash for Britney Spears, Till the World Ends, and generally became an icon for a generation of young millennials who connected with her DIY aesthetic, embrace of the LGBTQIA community, and open-hearted rebellion against capitalistic gluttony. But the creation of her second album, Warrior, proved ominous, setting the stage for a much darker period in the career and life of America's new favorite fun-loving misfit queen. Kesha wanted to take more artistic control on Warrior, moving away from the dance pop persona she constructed with Luke on her debut and in a more overtly rock and roll direction. Luke, ever the Svengali-ish Machiavellian hitmaker, refused to let her do so. The product was an album that hewed fairly closely to the formula of Animal, with some shards of Kesha's original vision thrown in, almost as an afterthought. And if her heart wasn't fully in it, the results showed in the record's performance. While Warrior did spawn the number two hit, Die Young, the rest of the singles never hit the top 20, and the album stiffed, selling a quarter of what Animal had. Kesha appeared on one more Dr. Luke hit in 2013, the Pitbull single Timber, before everything would change forever. In 2014, Kesha checked into rehab for bulimia and soon after filed charges against Dr. Luke for sexual assault and battery, sexual harassment, gender violence, emotional abuse, and violation of California business practices. The claims were harrowing, ranging from Luke's verbally denigrating her appearance to more serious allegations that he had drugged and raped her. The lawsuits sent shockwaves through popular culture and began 
began an ongoing battle between Luke and Kesha that is still being litigated to the present day. As a result of the allegations, it was revealed that Kesha was unable to release music under her contract without contributions from Luke, meaning that if Kesha was going to release new music in this period, she'd have to collaborate with her alleged abuser. This all put Kesha's music career on ice for five years, an absolute eternity for a budding pop star. After Luke finally waived the clause that required him to contribute to the album, she finally returned in 2017 with her third record, Rainbow, to a vastly changed musical landscape from the EDM festival wave in which she'd emerged. In standing, Rainbow was a marked departure from the sound and persona she created with Luke and found Kesha experimenting with a wide array of styles, from ballads to country stompers, straight up glam rock songs, neo soul, and more. The record was a critical darling, appearing on numerous year-end top 10 lists, and the lead single Praying, a triumphant power ballad that seemed to directly address Luke, became a top 20 hit that helped reestablish Kesha, albeit in an entirely new light as a pop music force. Since Rainbow, Kesha has become an icon for sexual assault survivors and continued to release new music, notably on her 2020 record, The High Road. She has sold over 87 million digital singles, making her one of the highest selling digital artists of all time, and accumulated 7 billion streams while selling 14 million albums worldwide. She has two number one albums, four number one singles, and 10 top tens. She's been nominated for two Grammys and was named by Billboard as one of the top artists of the 2010s. Here with me on the podcast to discuss the music and career of one of the most misunderstood and resilient figures in recent pop history is assistant editor at Pitchfork, Kat Zhang. Okay, so I'm here with assistant editor for Pitchfork, Kat Zhang. Kat, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to have you. I read your review of Kesha's Animal. I guess it was probably like maybe two or three months ago at this point. Yeah. And I immediately was like, I have to have this person on this podcast. Like, I thought it was just so brilliant. It really helped me, like, recontextualize that album and think about the influence it's had on some contemporary pop sounds and also, like, how it operated in the space in which it came out. And I just loved it. You're brilliant. So I'm so excited to have you on here for this discussion. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. You know, and I think this is going to be a fun conversation, too, because I think, like, in spite of how famous Kesha has been for the last decade or so and, like, what a persistent pop figure she's been, both in terms of her music and, obviously, as we're going to get to, in terms of some of the more, like, difficult extra musical roles she's played in the pop cultural landscape over the last 10 years, I feel like she continues to be, like, sort of misunderstood on some level. Uh, Would you agree with that? Yeah, I agree with that. I think just, like, the memory of Kesha, specifically from her first era, has sort of like lorded over her and and people keep her kind of frozen in that initial impression and then as she's trying to evolve they still think back to that time but even the memory of that time of her first album animal may not be accurate to what was happening because there's just so much like 2010s 
nostalgia and nostalgia inherently comes with a bit of distortion. Yeah. And I think it's like, there's so many brilliant musical flourishes on that record. And she was such a singular personality. And yet due to what we know was kind of going on behind the scenes there at this point, I think in some ways it can be hard to like grapple with what all of that meant, like what this freewheeling sort of like no fucks given persona she had on her albums in that era feels more complicated than it initially seemed now that we sort of like know what she was going through. You know what I mean? Right. There's definitely two poles that I see in the conversation. One was like, oh my God, early Kesha was the best. And there's like not that much critical thought in terms of how her relationship to an abusive producer has affected her sound or her presentation. And on the other hand, there's this tendency to be like, well, she was kind of his puppet and like almost talking about it in a way that minimizes her agency and her role in her own myth. Her persona is based on her life and she had an active involvement in constructing that persona. And it seems kind of unfair to like even, you know, in a well-intentioned way, be like, well, he was like so controlling and she had no... Mm you know, authority or or anything of those sorts. So I guess I'm sure in this interview, we will try to do some, I guess, course correction. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely fascinating because even in some of the reading that I was doing about it, it was like, her. it seems like her early persona, which was so well-defined and so clear-cut within the context of the other pop stars of that moment and felt like almost fully formed immediately upon her first song in a way that like a lot of pop stars, I think, can struggle for a period of time trying to like land on an identity or whatever. So it was really clear that like, obviously it was emanating and we can tell this from her biography and I think we'll get into this, that it was emanating from like some truths about who she was as a person and her perspective on music and her perspective on living life and her position as like a millennial in the context of like the recession and party culture, partying till you die is clearly, or before you die or until you die is obviously like something she like returns to over and over again, both in her Dr. Luke era and in her post Dr. Luke music. But at the same time, we know looking back that there was certainly a lot of clashing in terms of where she wanted to take her sound especially after her first record and the confinement that was sort of put on her by Dr. Luke especially on that second record Warrior I think that's become kind of like pretty established fact at this point that she was somewhat confined by him especially in that second era yeah definitely so I think I'd like to begin by just laying some groundwork for people about the state of pop music in that time period so just prior to Kesha's first record or her first single who are the major pop players of the mid to late aughts and like what kind of music are they making and I guess more specifically as it pertains to Kesha maybe talk a little bit about the relationship between hip-hop and pop in the pop stars of this era and I guess more broadly like how are they operating as pop stars just like if you have some examples. Yeah, so even just looking at the Billboard charts around like 2008, 2009, like the number one song in 2008 was Low by Florida. And then in 2009, people who are topping the Billboard charts are like the Black Eyed Peas, Lady Gaga with Just Dance. And so a lot of these big pop songs are set inside a sort of like party and club setting. Kesha's obviously kind of continuing in this already existing lineage of artists who are making these 
bombastic, fun songs about partying all the time and having a good time. Just the context of the recession and the mood being so bleak probably compelled a lot of artists to make music that was counter to that. And I think Kesha herself said it really well, where it's like, when times are hard, dancing is free. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting those artists that you brought up also make me sort of think about the sort of state of genre in pop, which is like something that's constantly in flux, of course, and... I think now we sort of often talk about the post-genre state of pop music. But I feel like one trend that was important at that moment and is highlighted by artists like the Black Eyed Peas, for instance, is the transition from hip pop and B, which was the de rigueur pop style of the early to mid-2000s. Like if you think about J-Lo or Gwen Stefani, you were dealing with artists that were dabbling in like a frothy version of radio hip hop in a sense. You brought up the Black Eyed Peas. I mean, Fergie is another sort of like white woman who's like essentially making pop music, but bringing like a lot of hip hop elements in it, like essentially rapping on songs like Fergalicious. Fergalicious definition, make them boys go loco. They want my treasures, so they get their pleasures from my boat. So you can see me, you can't squeeze me. I ain't easy, I ain't sleazy. I got reasons why I tease them. Boys just come and go like seasons. Fergalicious. Fergalicious to me feels like a real precursor to a casual sound. Yeah, definitely. I think there's like, I forgot which one it is, but there are a couple of Kesha songs that really do sound like Fergie. <laughs> and Gwen a little bit too. I mean, Hollow Back Girl is like kind of a rap song in some senses. And Gwen obviously was like someone that, you know, is also a complicated figure in the context of cultural appropriation, which we will like obviously touch on with Kesha a little bit. Yeah. And, and the other thing that you brought up that I think is really worth noting is this, as you said, like recession era, dancing is free. We're going to just party until we drop. That feels like a very very unique facet of that particular era of pop music. You know, it's funny because like I was thinking when you wrote about that in your piece, right now we're also in like kind of like a horrible destitute time, but we can't make music like that because like we can't really party. Like our partying is so restricted in the pandemic and whatever. But like in this particular era, we were also in kind of like a bleak moment, but we had the freedom to cut loose and have fun. And that feels like so singular to that particular moment. Yeah, I mean, I do see maybe like two years ago, the explosion of disco based albums like Dua Lipa's mm. Future Nostalgia to be kind of a similar gravitating towards exuberant pop music to flee depressing circumstances. Of course, there are like <laughs> records on the other side of the spectrum that really do feel like pandemic records. But yeah, similar circumstances, I guess. And with Kesha, I think she, through her personal background, was almost like uniquely prepared for this time period or just because she grew up not having a lot of money. I think this ethos of I'm going to have the best time possible and I have no money and that's okay. Like I can still do great things with what I have. The, her personal background and mission translates very well then to like the cultural moment and the economic circumstances of the country. Yeah, that's really interesting. So can you talk a little bit about Kesha's origin story? Like who is she? Just broadly speaking, you know, how, where did she grow up? Who are her parents? Like who is she, you know, in her pre-fame era? Kesha was born in the Valley in like the late 80s allegedly at a party no idea whether this is true <laughs> but it is like such a great backstory also just yeah. you know because ballet girls are stereotyped as being like stupid and having vocal fry or whatever and these are all things that will be like leveraged at 
Kesha later on, her being annoying and stupid. So it's just like a perfect little story. And her mom was a country songwriter. And then her dad from day one was just kind of out of the picture. She didn't know who he was. Later on, she like tries to find him. But for the most part, he's just not there. Mm. So she and her brothers are raised by a single mom. Her mom gets, I think, a publishing deal. And so they move to Nashville. So that's where Kesha really grew up. She said that she was just like a loner or just like didn't have that good of a time in school socially because they were kind of moving around a lot so it was hard to form lasting bond but also like you know she wore homemade pants that were like kind of funky and she like just didn't have the money to wear cool clothes and to kind of ingratiate herself with all of these other kids so she was a little bit of an outcast I think that experience will probably inform some of her kind of general life philosophy and music but she did write songs with her mom her mom would take the kids to studios and stuff like that she got really early exposure to the music industry. The other thing I love about Kesha's backstory that I personally clung on to when I was in middle school and high school was that Kesha was really smart or, you know, she got like mm. a near perfect score on the SAT. She would like sneak into Cold War lectures at the nearby college. Like she was in the band and she was slated to go to Barnard before she eventually dropped out to pursue her music career. So oh, interesting. it's kind of like now we are more willing to accept that how you present your or like having fun doesn't mean that you're stupid like you can be both smart and like to have fun but for some reason like a decade ago it feels like it wasn't a thing that people bought into and so maybe Kesha's academic background was brought up as a way to be like guys come on like stop taking this for seriously this is just like right. her persona I liked it because I was a nerd so it was like fun <laughs> to have a, a figure who was smart and fun but yeah eventually what happens is she and her mom were like making music together and her mother her mother was like only somewhat successful as a songwriter, right? Like I know she has this one kind of big hit with Dolly Parton. Yeah, she was somewhat successful, but in that it didn't seem to ever translate into any monetary success. Right. And her mom, it seems like, knew someone who knew Dr. Luke, and mm. a demo got passed to him, and then he listened to the demo, and he was interested in it. So allegedly, this demo had two songs. One was this sort of gorgeous country ballad, kind of in the tradition that she had known, like, through her mom. And the other was just, like, what is described as, like, a gobsmackingly awful trip-hop track. <laughs> uh, where she's like, you know, the lyrics are effectively like, I'm a white girl from Nashville, bitch, or something <laughs> along those lines. You know, where it's like... Not Nashville, bitch. <laughs> it, like, the lyrics are kind of corny, and I'm sure the instrumentals were a little weird, but in that, Dr. Luke was like, well, this girl has really got, like, spunk and personality, and this stands out to me, having listened to so many demos. At least there's a personality that we can work with. I think she had said, like, she was kind of just goofing around, when she had made that stuff and I think maybe didn't know 
that her mom had sent it over. So it wasn't necessarily something that she was really, really put a lot of like intention and thought into crafting. That was kind of her breakthrough moment. At the time, her family was on The Simple Life, Paris Hilton, Nicole Richie's reality TV show. The episode is about Paris and Nicole trying to find Kesha's mom a boyfriend. My name is PB. I'm a single mom of three kids in Nashville, Tennessee. All the kids play music. We all meditate. We're, I guess, what you'd call free spirits. I think Paris and Nicole will fit in with our family really well. Dr. Luke calls in the middle of filming and then Nicole Richie like hangs up and then <laughs> he calls again and is like, please. And so that's the beginnings of how Kesha will then move to LA and start her career. Oh my God. So there's documentation of their first interaction on the show or like one of their first interactions, Kesha and Luke. I don't think it's in the episode. Oh. That's like the in, more in around interviews. Episode. Yeah, right. it was just like he called and then Nicole Richie answered and she was the one who hung up on him, which is it was really funny. And also it's very Nicole Richie if you've ever watched that show. That's really fascinating. I mean, first of all, the sort of like self-starter dumpster dive aesthetic feels like extremely pertinent to like the persona she develops, especially like in contrast to the like glitz and glam of a Rihanna or a Lady Gaga, like when they explode. Like one of the things that really separates Kesha and even from a Katy Perry who is working with a lot of the same collaborators with her there's sort of like this pristine sort of like Candyland image that a lot of the pop stars Nicki Minaj is another one that are developing in this era and it's fascinating to hear how authentic that really was to her experience I remember when she first came up she was like yeah I get my clothes out of dumpsters like that's what I do that's like what me and my friends are up to so it's fascinating to hear sort of like the origin story of that being like literally the result of her family struggling with money and having to find creative ways to like express herself as a child yeah Yeah, and also I'm really intrigued by the story about the two demos because that really speaks to a contrast in her musicality that I feel like we really see played out throughout her career. I mean, if you think about the sort of like garish, I'm a Nashville bitch hip hop track, Dr. Luke gravitates towards kind of like honestly to his credit because whatever they come up with together is like pretty brilliant and seems to be based on her silly white girl rappy thing that she does. Yeah. But she's also an incredibly apt and kind of virtuosic country singer and rock singer, especially in her post-Dr. Luke career, in ways that are like pretty obscured by the persona that she and Luke craft from the horrific trip-hop track aesthetic that she comes up with. So that's a really fascinating thing to have that dichotomy laid out so clearly right from the get-go. Yeah, definitely. I mean, she obviously in later albums will explore more of the country stuff and more of the things that she's interested in. But the first album, they really keep focused on this persona on the dance pop stuff plus or minus like a couple of kind of weirdo tracks that i'm sure we'll get into (laughs) it's funny also like to revisit vice ran an article that was like about kesha's old myspace profile and under her influences truly it's just like so many artists that she lists under her influence (laughs) like M.I.A., Sonic Youth, Aphex Twin, Regina Spector, like just people all over the board. Looking at that, you kind of want to be like, oh, maybe that's hyperbole because everyone wants to say that they're influenced by all these people, you know, like how how could you possibly whatever. But like, I was going to say the ultimate cliche, Yeah, the ultimate cliche to be like, I listen to everything. (laughs) Right. 
But like, the more I think about it and the more I listen to her stuff, yeah, I kind of believe it. There's like an old interview of her at Lollapalooza and she gets asked, who are you most excited to see? And she says the Yaya Yaz and like Animal Collective. So like from early on, like she had all of these kind of other influences. It just maybe wasn't as clear because she wasn't exploring them from the get-go at the first album. Yeah. And there's a very rock star energy to her. Even in the dance pop Dr. Luke era, she doesn't give polished diva dance queen. You don't think of Kesha as like a Beyonce, like leading a phalanx of dancers. You think of her with some sort of raw rock star, less polished energy that would make me understand why someone like Karen O might be someone that she like connects with. Yeah, definitely. I think just like her unvarnishedness is very intriguing to me and a little bit going back to what we were saying about her being kind of a dumpster diver because... I don't see that now. Yeah, there is a now culturally maybe artists want to be seen as like raw and vulnerable, but there's still a very cultivated energy to that. And Kesha in interviews is so explicit about her class politics and how she finds basically a bunch of other pop stars sort of disgusting with their gluttony. I feel like, honestly, I just want to stand for complete fucking irreverence. And I think people need to like, it's a recession, man, and dancing's free. Well, I'm a little bit of like, hopefully the anti-pop star. Like, I don't have extensions and I don't like have a makeup artist. Like, I kind of just keep on three-day-old makeup and I try, you know, also fighting the global warming issue. I don't shower very often, conserve that water. And um, I just kind of want to like be more in touch with like, the youth, like the really broke youth that I've been participating in up until very, very recently. And just kind of, it's not about really what club you're at or what scene you're in or what you look like or if you're a guy that likes guys or if you're a guy that wants to be a girl. Like, I just support people being humans and having a really good time. So. I don't think there's other pop stars now who embody that same disdain with having that much money and just like trying Mm. to flex wealth in a certain way. Right. And you know, that's really fascinating too in the context of the hip hop conversation, because even as she sort of trades, as we're going to get into on her first record and a lot of hip hop tropes, she kind of inverts them because so much about hip hop, especially in this era, is all about like wealth, flaunting wealth, admitting no vulnerability, whatever. And like her whole perspective is like, hey, here's me and my friends. I'm poor. I wake up and I brush my teeth with Jack Daniels, you know, and like we sneak into a rich in some rich girl's house and puke in their closet. And like, you know, even though she may be like adopting like rapping guises or like rapping styles, like what she's actually talking about is pretty distant from like what the hip hop tropes of this era were really about. Even a Fergie or whatever. Like, yeah, not talking about like Fergie as the ultimate rapper, but Fergie's still kind of like, I'm great. I'm perfect. You know, I'm rich. I have swag, you know, like that was what her raps were about. Kesha's were always like, I'm poor. I'm not supposed to be here. Which is very endearing. Okay, so she has this dalliance with Luke. She moves out to LA, then languishes for a bit, right? Like he kind of forgets about her as far as I 
kind of understand the story. Yeah, I think he's kind of like, hey, move to LA and we'll make your dreams come true. And she goes there and it just kind of seems like he disappears. Based on the lawsuits, he might have not actually fully disappeared because it seems like he was still at a bunch of parties that she went to, but didn't seem to really support her career-wise for a while. And so during this time, she was just trying to write hits for other people, occasionally living out of her car. She had gone to LA and she had tried to find this guy who claimed to be her dad but she met him and she's like there's no way my real dad would ever have a video game chair so like I don't like you and then (laughs) she like tried to do things on her own I think this period of her life was also really formative being on her own and still not having any money going to this bar where like if you buy a tequila shot you get a free taco and that's like kind of how she sustained (laughs) herself (laughs) but you know I guess she learned a lot of tools of the trade and it seemed like some of the people that she worked with while she was waiting for Luke to do something. Some of the people she worked with had very high praise for her craftsmanship and her command of melody. I think she maybe tried to arrange a different deal, but because she was contractually obligated to him, like she couldn't really maneuver. And then one day out of the blue, he just comes by and he's like, hey, I want you to sing vocals on this song with Flo Rida, Right Round. So before we get to Right Round, I think we should take a quick moment and just talk about who Dr. Luke is and like what his role in pop music is prior to this creation of Kesha's initial sound. So like if you had to describe just briefly, what's Dr. Luke's story and like what kind of music is he making within the pop context between, you know, whatever, Kelly Clarkson in 2004 and when he starts to kind of work with Kesha on her sound? Yeah, he used to play guitar in like the SNL house band. I think his roots were generally in music that was just like more esoteric than big pop stuff. Yeah, he had also dabbled as a hip hop producer in the 90s. Like he made records with most deaf. Most deaf named Dr. Luke, Dr. Luke. And that was like part of his origin story. So yeah, like prior to meeting Max Martin, as far as I understand the story, mostly from John Seabrook's book, The Song Machine, he was like, A, yes, playing in the band in NSNL. But one of the reasons that Max Martin liked him was because he had a certain like fluency with hip hop that Max Martin as a Swede obviously was like less engaged with. And he had made his own music on a hip hop label. Definitely schooled in electronic music, schooled in hip hop, and then at some point he meets Max Martin and they're like, well, why don't you try to make music for millions of people. The thing that people always say about Dr. Luke, I guess, is that he had such a kind of intense focus that he brought to pretty much every craft that he was involved with, whether it was like speed chess or making music. And he shared Max Martin's emphasis on getting to the chorus quicker or just making like a scientifically, mathematically perfect pop tune, somewhat informed by the 80s style. You can definitely see in Dr. Luke's work what kind of perfection he's going towards, and a lot of the music that he makes sounds similar to each other, seems to follow a kind of formula. The first artist that he really worked with and helped write hits for was Kelly Clarkson, who was fresh out of American Idol, and he and Max Martin did Since You've Been Gone.
some of Kesha's early songs sound like they could have been like a Kelly Clarkson joint. It did seem like Kelly Clarkson really hated working with him and that he gave her no room to explore her own agenda or more personal material. And it was very much focused on what would be a hit. But sadly, it does seem that he was right in terms of what would perform on radio and what wouldn't perform on radio. And so she tried not to work with him. And then she had an album that flopped. And then she worked with him and Max Martin again. So I don't know. That's definitely, it feels like foreshadowing to some extent. Yeah. You know, the other artist that I feel like is really perfect into Kesha in terms of Dr. Luke in this period is Pink. Pink and Dr. Luke and Max Martin team up for a lot of her mid-period hits like You and Your Hands. Which have a bit of the rock meets pop energy that Kesha runs on. And Pink, I think more than some of the other pop stars that precede Kesha, has a little bit of that garish, middle finger up, I don't want to be Britney Spears. I mean, that was like Pink's whole vibe, ironically, given that she's working with the same producers as Britney is. But I feel like Pink and those big Pink hits of this era, produced by and written, co-written with Dr. Luke, feel like real precursors to the Kesha sound. Yeah, there's definitely like Pink and Kesha have the similar rebelliousness. I personally think that Party at a Rich Dude's House like could have been a Pink song. Totally. I think the other artist that's obviously important to bring up is Katie because there's like a certain aesthetic to I Kissed a Girl where the sort of pop rock sound of Kelly and Pink starts to morph with Dr. Luke and Max Martin into something sort of more mechanized. Yeah. I feel like I Kissed a Girl is a real precursor to Right Round. They both are right on the line between something that feels like somewhat indebted to rock and roll, but like is moving pretty forward into like a completely synthesized dance tracky sound. Yeah. Okay. The other thing that I was going to mention is like a lot of the artists that Dr. Luke is working with are women. And a lot of the songs Mm. that he is writing have this general stance of empowerment or sort of like, I'm a woman and I rule and like, this is my life, which obviously now has like kind of an ironic undertone because also his strategy, I think, was more to find talent that was new and less developed so that they were easier to control, frankly. Like he, as a very meticulous person, wanted to be the one controlling a lot of things and it's just easier to work with artists who are less established and so that's another theme is like outwardly these may be empowerment anthems who knows what's happening behind the scenes yeah to your point i read that pink also really didn't like him very much and braced against his desire to control her on that level and pink was a more established star when she started to work with them and one of the reasons at least according to seabrook's book which like is kind of the bible on some of this stuff right he gravitated towards Katy Perry and eventually Kesha for exactly the reasons that you were saying which was that they were each more willing to be molded and crafted into his vision of what they should be than Pink and Kelly who like kind of fought him a little bit more on it all were and I don't mean that in any way to sort of demean them I mean having musical success is incredibly difficult and you're in the pop world and I can only imagine what anybody would do to like be like yeah I'm gonna try to make this work however I can and like here's this guy coming along 
song that knows how to make hit records and like right. has the track record to prove it. It'd be take a lot of guts to turn that down, I guess. Right. And she was like 17, 18, you know, like who, yeah. <laughs> barely an adult. You just don't have that much room to say no sometimes. Totally. All right. So as you said, she's sort of languishing a bit. He has her move out to LA and she's kind of like not much is going on. And as you said, she's not making a bunch of money. She's kind of continuing her dumpster divey lifestyle. And then he's producing this record for red hot radio rapper Flo Rider called <laughs> Right Round and decides that they need a female vocal on the hook. Is that kind of what happens? And sort of he decides that she's the one for it? Yeah, I don't really completely understand the calculus, but that's essentially what happened. She sings the hook. You can, in retrospect, like tell it's her. It's not like they put so much manipulation on it that you can't tell. I don't know if they offered to put her name on the track, but it kind of seems like she didn't want to have her name credited on the track because she wanted to establish her own career and not necessarily be defined by this hit, but mm. still. Oh, so it was her decision. I'm pretty sure she was at least part of the decision to not put her name on the track. But even though her name is not on the track, she still gets a certain amount of fame. And so I think because of the momentum that Right Round contributed to her career, there was a rush to then work on a debut album and release it. There is an effort to capitalize on the attention that she is getting because of Right Round. When you hear Right Round, like looking back, does it make sense to you why she's the person for that particular song and are there elements of the Kesha that we will come to know on Animal that are apparent right off the bat just listening to her sing that hook? I think her voice has a grit or a little bit of like a textural element that makes the hook more interesting than if someone else were to sing it. There's this sort of like chutzpah to it. She really puts her whole, sorry, her whole pussy into it. <laughs> There's a garishness to that track. I feel like sort of tastelessness becomes a really important element of the Kesha sound, sort of like proudly reveling in garishness. And Right Round has that vibe to it too. Like it's it's a garish song. That's what I'll say about it. Maybe that's a little bit of like a key into like how they start to think about this is maybe where we want to go a little bit further with Kesha. Yeah, she does sing in a way, you know, a lot of times where she has like a kind of ravenous intensity to her yeah. that really comes out. And yeah, that's definitely totally. what I was trying to get at with the grit in the voice is just, you know, there's yes. just a little bit in the delivery that makes her very different. Totally, 100%. So they then go about trying to create her debut record, Animal. As we talked about earlier in the conversation, they're clearly trying to build something around her unique persona. They're not trying to obscure that in any way. And yet Dr. Luke like clearly has like a very clear vision for how this all should work in sound. Do you have a sense of how they create the sound and how would you describe the sound? Kesha, while she was waiting in limbo in LA and maybe even before that, she had 200 songs sitting in the bank 
And she said that it took a long time for them to cut it down. Like at first they wanted to cut down to 12 songs and then they gave her more room for 14. Some of the big hits though, there are more accounts of how they were workshopping that. So with TikTok, her star making hit, she was actually really worried that brushing your teeth with a bottle of Jack didn't make any sense. Before I leave, brush my teeth with a bottle of Jack. Cause when I leave for the night, I coming back and drunk drunk crunk crunk all these things would make her sound really stupid and dr luke and his protege benny blanco are just like no 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 you gotta keep it it's very funny and i think at one point she was like trying to do some revisions and she says they had to chase me out of the studio because i wanted to like edit this stuff out and dr luke's explanation for it is you know she's a very smart person and so her instincts as an intelligent person is to be like i can't sound stupid like this but stupidity can be fun and like (laughs) it's my job as a producer to make sure that the artists don't overthink the most mm. indelible lines on that song are all the ones that she was uncertain about. But a lot of the general thrust of it, how they're crafting the persona, seems to very much be based upon her real attitude and life. So let's zero in on TikTok for a second. Obviously, this is her out-the-gate smash, you know, still to this day, I would say, is her signature song. How does she come across on that song? Like, what is the Kesha persona as we come to know it through TikTok? She sounds wasted, like she doesn't give a fuck, and she's like a total baller. Wake up in the morning feeling like P. Diddy. Hey, up, my glasses, I'm out the door, I'm gonna hit this city Let's before go. I leave. In the music video, she is stumbling down to the kitchen. There's like a mom who is like a traditional housewife who like drops the pancakes seeing Kesha in her disheveled state. Like that's essentially it. I am totally defying your norms of respectability <laughs> in all senses. From the gate, wake up in the morning feeling like P. Diddy. Already there's what we were saying, the larger than life persona being a baller and a player, kind of casting herself in that stereotypically masculine way. That's really funny. And then just like all the slang that she uses, getting crunk. No, no one says that anymore. It's like so, yeah. I'm talking about everybody getting crunk, Boys try to touch my junk. Gonna smack him if he getting too drunk, drunk. We said getting crunk in those days, Kat. I don't know if you remember. We talked about getting crunk all the time. Yeah, apparently she used to call her blackberry her doucheberry, which like <laughs> makes total sense. But you know, the slang is so particular to that era. It has aged poorly, but it is aged poorly in a well that works for her overall persona because her totally. whole thing is about being sort of tacky. And then there is that speak rapping, but she has a lot of vocal fry there's just a lot of a personality to it and there's also an extreme use of auto-tune Like me 
Mick Jagger. It's so funny because with a lot of artists when they use autotune, it's just like throughout the whole verse or it's like, you know, it's just generally present. And TikTok, they'll focus in on a single word and mm. then like bombard that one word with effects. Trying to get a little bit tipsy. It's really apparent they want you to pay attention to where the autotune and all that stuff is really coming in. They're trying to get a little bit tipsy. <laughs> It is the point. They're not trying to hide it. It's not like right. they're not using autotune to like make her voice sound perfect. They're using it to be like, here's autotune in your face. It's out front. It's not subterranean. <laughs> right. And like this is in the midst of a huge autotune backlash. Like she will get all these accusations of not being able to sing or whatever. And then like Time Magazine calls autotune one of the worst inventions. And people are just like very wary of autotune. They think it's stripping the soul out of yeah. music. Later, right. people will argue at one kind of feature about autotune. The music critic Simon Reynolds will say that like Kesha was one of the real figures who proved that autotune is not like a dehumanizing device, but something that you can really use to reinforce your own personality. A hundred percent. I kept thinking to myself listening to this record and this song in particular, this is like one of the most overtly mechanized sounding records I've ever heard in my life. And yet her personality is so so present and clear and it's so filled out on this thing that it really is the antidote to that entire line of argument. Kesha's personality is so front and center from the minute she starts singing on that song. And the other thing that I thought was just so fascinating, just looping back to something you said earlier, is the sort of like rapper, a storyteller, because this song is a real story. It literally begins with her waking up in the morning and you almost like follow her through the motions of like heading to this party. It reminded me slightly of another great Dr. Luke song, Party in the USA, which is also a song that starts at the beginning of a story and sort of like walks you through like the beats of a story. I hopped up the plane at LAX with a dream my cardigan. Welcome to the land of fame access. Am I gonna fit in? Jumped in the camp, here I am for the first time. Look to my right and I see the Hollywood. That was such like a pristine post-Disney star hit, and this has like a dirty, grungy vibe to it. And I love the way that the lines that you pointed out are what make that song so memorable. I mean, wake up in the morning feeling like P. Diddy. Is that the greatest opening line of a pop song of the 21st century? I, I think it's definitely in contention. We still remember it to this day and kick them to the curb unless they look like Mick Jagger, which like makes no sense. Like what she's talking about, she wants to fuck this like 85 year old rock star. Like that's yeah. another like kind of crazy thing to say. The sound of it was really fascinating to me too. It's it's in conversation, I feel like, with some of the other Dr. Luke productions of this era. This is 2010. This is Teenage Dream. These sort of pristine dance pop songs, like it has some of the elements of it. But it also, as you point out in your review, songs like TikTok feel like borderline experimental in how they sound. I definitely hear Daft Punk. You were mentioning how like in Ann Powers' review of her record, the more like indie sort of blog house influences that Dr. Luke was clearly playing with in creating Kesha Sound. Blog house, just as an aside, was kind of like a nebulous movement in the like 2000s, sort of like where indie music and 
club music or dance music was like meeting. And I cannot escape this conversation about TikTok without bringing up this Justice song, The Party, which featured Uffy, who is another, I think, precursor to Kesha in some ways. And Mm -hmm. you have to admit, this song came out in 2007. Justice is like a huge French DJ duo, very indebted to Daft Punk. And they create this song in 2007 called The Party. And I mean, I don't know if you agree with me, but there's zero chance Dr. Luke did not listen to that song when they were creating TikTok, right? When my day is over After picking the right clothes For about an hour Ooh, I'm turning on from all the carrots Around my neck Tonight I'm taking out the bling And I'm dressed to impress Out on the streets All the taxis are showing me love Cause I'm shining like a princess In the middle of thugs And at the club the bouncers Recognize my face So while you waiting in the line We just enter the place Let's get this party started, right? Let's get drunk and freaky fly. You with me, so it's alright. We gonna stay up the whole night. Let's get this party started, right? Let's get drunk and freaky fly. Yeah, in terms of like lyrical content, it's very similar. Also, Uffy's Hop the Glock. In terms of the cyborg rap singer, she's definitely a huge predecessor. They're huge debts to be paid, kind of unfortunate for Uffy that Kesha like came out with TikTok and then the things that she released felt pale in comparison and she right. like she didn't get to making an album fast enough to really establish herself as a first. I mean, even listening to Uffy's songs, her tone is more deadpan and maybe neutral, whereas Kesha has so much character. Right. Yeah, you know, it reminds me a little bit of I mean, Dr. Luke and Max Martin were famous for this. I mean, we talked about Karen O earlier. Since You've Been Gone was based on the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's maps. And they just sort of were like, what if we made this song like the most maximally pleasing, melodically perfect hook first pop song? And to me, The Party and TikTok represent a similar paradigm where it's like, you can hear a lot of the basis for what made TikTok amazing in that Justice song. But in the Justice song, the beat doesn't drop for the first two minutes of the song. Right. And like the hook is not nearly as euphoric and melodic driven as TikTok's is. So you can see how they might have heard that and said, you know, with a few slight tweaks, we could really put this thing at number one. And man, did they ever. I mean, to me, TikTok is perhaps the emblematic song of 2010. Like the minute that song comes on, I am immediately transported back to that exact moment. Because it was the first number one hit of the 2010s. Like it, <laughs> so it, it really like set the tone and it broke so many records as in terms of like longest running digital single, something along those lines. But yeah, it really set the tone for what was to come. Totally. And I feel like it really is a celebration as we talked about a sort of like the gleeful tastelessness of the EDM era. This record stands to me as perhaps the sort of emblematic EDM pop record in that the way it goes for the tastelessness with full gusto feels so pertinent to like this, what that music was all about. Like that music had no restraint and neither did Kesha. And I also liked the way that you were talking about her persona. I read a review, I can't remember what it was, maybe it was Ann Powers who talked about her as like part juvenile delinquent, part wisecracking dame, which I thought was like a really funny description of her. And this sort of idea of her like rolling her eyes and snapping her gum, like there's a irony, I guess is what I'm kind of getting at in it. That was also like a critical part of millennial culture at that moment. And then at the same time, it explores this theme she constantly returns to in her music, which is this idea of partying as 
as the last resort in like a world that's burning. That becomes a theme in Kesha's music that's established here. So I guess more broadly speaking, my question for you is with TikTok becoming such a huge hit, how does that set the template for like what a Kesha song is in that early period? Yeah, a lot of Kesha songs, as you mentioned, are about partying like there's no tomorrow, very present day. It's like garish electro pop animal has this sounds are kind of they feel like acid green or sort of mm. so neon there's like a toxic waste quality there's a lot of sass there's a lot of using vulgar language towards men that is traditionally leveraged at women. <laughs> she loves to call men sluts, which is pretty funny to me. Mm -hmm. That formula will be replicated definitely on Cannibal, and you see them trying to use it for Warrior as well. And then obviously she revisits that concept maybe on some of the later albums, just this expectation that she is the eternal party girl. Yeah, you know, the other things that sort of came to mind to me too, just listening to what you're talking about are like jock jams, those sports pump up anthems from like the 90s that were like just completely ridiculous and tasteless. Yes. That sort of thudding, inelegant, gaudy sort of pump up music mm -hmm. is a lot of the way that a song like perhaps Your Love Is My Drug is produced. And then the other thing I thought about were those kind of garish, one-off pop hits of the 90s, like Barbie Girl and like mm -hmm. I'm Blue, da ba dee da ba die <laughs> And like, you know what I mean? Like these kind of like tasteless, throw it all at the wall, turn it all up to a thousand dance tracks. I'm This record really revels in there's never too much. It's never too far. The grossest, as you said, the slime greeniest that we can get this, the better in a sense. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Just the language in some senses is like so juvenile. And I was like, oh, you know, it must be the era. And I was thinking about the, as I mentioned in the review, like the Usher song, OMG. It's like, honey got them boobies. Wow, oh wow. Honey got a booty like pow, pow, pow. Honey got some boobies like wow, oh wow. And turns out, she says in an interview, like, that's my favorite song, just his choice to talk about boobies that way. So I was like, okay, that's like definitely very clarifying because she is interested in <laughs> talking about genitalia and parts crudely and just using sort of middle school insult. Don't be a little bitch with your chit chat. Just show me what you're 
one of her songs literally spells out cunt, but it's see you next Tuesday. You know, yeah. all of that stuff. So like, in a sense though, the other hits from this record, which it has numerous of, your love is my drug, blah, 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 take it off. They're all are essentially operating in the same formula as TikTok, right? There's these kind of wrapped verses. Maybe I need some rehab or maybe just need some sleep. I got a sick obsession. I'm seeing it in my dreams. I'm These like undeniable melodic hooks. Would you say that they're like just iterations on the same formula again and again and again? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, some feature more rapping than others, but like when you hear them in succession, you're like, yeah, same universe. And then there are a couple of oddballs in there. Yeah, I was gonna say, so are there moments on this record that you feel like point to other guises that maybe are just off stage in this particular era, but maybe like help us understand that Kesha is potentially more than this very codified persona that emerges on this record? I think kind of a fan favorite is Steven. It's my favorite Kesha song. It's just such a weird, song in like a beautiful way and I honestly I'm trying to think from the perspective of like Dr. Luke I sort of feel like he would have tried to axe it well he didn't Um, he didn't work on that song yeah it's inspired by her real life she definitely had this guy who she was obsessed with and she says she was like being stalkerish too but just like the grating way in which she's like why won't you call me at the beginning is so unhinged Steven Steven, why won't you call me? Steven, why won't you call me? And then it's like really kind of peppy, kind of like a Polly Pocket theme song or like yeah. Bratz st- like theme song or something like that. And then in the totally. middle, she like adopts this sort of like pseudo British accent. It definitely fits within the broader persona that she has sketched out being extreme and having like no decorum and borderline harassing this dude. (laughs) But it's like very comical and winking, but it doesn't necessarily scan as an immediate hit in the way that other songs do, partially because it's just so freaking weird. (laughs) And it's not really a party song. It's slower tempo. I kind of thought it's a little bit country nodding and also... As you were saying, it's a little bit sad. Like, to me, I thought to myself, this song is, like, loaded with pathos because what I keep thinking about is a sad robot who, like, wishes for connection and wishes for love and human attention but doesn't know how to act normally human or something like that.
it really illustrates that Kesha can do more than be just sort of the queen of the party. Like she can take that queen of the party persona and give it a little bit of another spin or another outlook. And I actually find that song like powerfully sad in a way that even some of her more direct like ballad songs from her latter records that are meant to be like more hit you over the head are mm -hmm. less affecting. Like in, in a record that so relishes sort of mechanization and robotness and synthesized music, there's something that Daft Punk also did a really good job of sort of where's the human in the machine and like where's the sad robot in the machine and like mm -hmm. that's what that record is to me. I also, I tried to find it but I couldn't. There was some contemporaneous review of Animal that described it as sort of like either making fun of or being the drunk girl's response to Taylor Swift's Steven which came out around the same time and like views them as sort of the angel and devil counterpart songs. Hey Steven, I know looks can be deceiving but I know I saw a light in you And as we walked we were talking I didn't say half the things I wanted to Okay, I've never seen a review that compares the two Stevens together, although I love that theory. I think Ann Powers did write that Kesha was the evil twin of Taylor Swift, which does like make sense as blonde girls who had their origin in country. Yes, exactly. They actually share more in common than meets the eye to begin with, not to mention Max Martin. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta tell you, Kat, like going back to this record, it is a great album like I really <laughs> enjoy it and I feel like it really hangs together as an aesthetic idea in a way that maybe wasn't so apparent at the time it got quite ravaged when it initially came out I felt like by a lot of critics who had criticized the autotune thing or whatever I feel like I now look back on it and see it as kind of like a minor classic of the era so consistent I mean those first six songs are all incredible records and obviously it really worked for her because she became like a fucking superstar from it all right, so Kesha releases this record, as we mentioned. It's got four top 10 hits on it. You know, one of the criticisms that I think that we should sort of spend a beat on is the idea of cultural appropriation. I mean, one of the big things on this record that made her distinct from some of the other women that were working in pop at this moment was this rapping thing. How do you look back on that? I mean, we've touched on it a little bit, but like looking at this through the lens of 2021, how do you look back on sort of Kesha's rapping thing that she does so heavily on this record? I do wince at some of the terminology, including steez a little bit, and then also the choice to call herself a lovesick crackhead. I mm. really feel like the use of the word crackhead should be just abolished. Also, yeah. like her music videos had, I think Your Love Is My Drug had like some vague, like Native American appropriation. Not vague. I think she was wearing a headdress, which was unfortunately <laughs> not uncommon during that time. Nope. Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, on Kesha's most recent album, she sings Don't Touch My Weave, which does not seem like her place to be singing. So there right. is a loosely problematic track record here. But I don't think that she... It was interesting when she first got called a rapper, I think the Dr. Luke camp was really trying to push against that or like right. at least sort of say like she's not rapping in a way that she's really trying to say like I claim black culture or she's like right. she's more falling into like a very established lineage of white rappers, Blondie, Beastie Boys and stuff like that. Definitely a comparison to Miley Cyrus's later attempts at doing hip hop culture like Kesha 
is not necessarily out there trying to twerk or sport grills. I hope I'm right on this because maybe there is like a video of her trying to do that. But to my knowledge, I think she was embracing some musical signatures, but she wasn't necessarily trying to full on steep herself in some of the cultural and like image based stuff. Yeah, you know, I think there's like a strain of white rappers in this era in the party EDM space that it can sometimes start to feel like they're almost making fun of rapping. And I think sometimes some of this early Kesha music borderline gets into that territory. The way that you might see like a group of dumb frat bros being like, as you even mentioned about her early trip hop tracks, being like, yo, my name is this and a da da da. Yeah. It's reverent, but borderline making fun of it. I mean, I feel like we can't escape LMFAO in the context of this conversation because they feel like a counterpart to Kesha in some ways. Again, super charged party anthems where two, well, I guess one guy was a person of color in that group, but yeah. this sort of like frat bro-y approach to hip hop culture that feels mm-hmm. borderline like it could be poking fun at it. And I think some of these Kesha songs sometimes scrape that line. I think because she's so genuine and because her personality feels so open-hearted, weirdly, through all the machinery. She doesn't ultimately come off that way, but I can see how it could come up to the line of that, maybe, in a sense. So, after Animal, she also drops this eight-song EP called cannibal which is like essentially an extension this is an era where this is happening quite a bit the fame monster is another example that comes to mind where artists are quickly moving on to an extension of their first record by dropping like another album we can touch on this very briefly obviously the number one hit single we are who we are tonight we're going hard 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 just like the world is ours we're tearing it apart you know we're superstars which to me represents an important shifting point in Kesha's sound, not in the sense that it doesn't sound sonically exactly like a lot of the songs on Animal, but it does present another important facet to Kesha's personality that maybe isn't totally obvious immediately on Animal, which is like this open-hearted, sort of like leader of the misfits sort of vibe and use of the royal we. Yeah, Kesha has always been a pretty outspoken supporter of the LGBTQ community. Take It Off was actually about her experience at a draft show and how she was, I don't know, happy seeing it. Um, right. And so I think we we are, <laughs> yeah, there is like a kind of generosity to her misfit persona. And I think we, who we are, this sort of empowerment, self-acceptance anthem is just like a confirmation of that. If I'm not mistaken, it was written for her gay fans. There is some direct connection with her queer fan base. It feels like it was part of this big movement at that time of these songs that could scan as broader self-acceptance anthems, but like got co-opted as gay anthems. Like Firework is another one. Born This Way. I feel like this was like an era where like every female pop star had to have their like vaguely gay self-acceptance anthem. Like this is right around the time of like marriage equality passing I think at the same times but it's still talking about partying but it definitely comes at it from a slightly different angle like it doesn't feel ironic it feels very authentically straightforward in a way that TikTok doesn't for instance right yeah exactly yeah for sure 
So let's talk about the second record. So this is two years later. She releases this record called Warrior. It's again, obviously, I think even more so than the first record, exclusively produced by Dr. Luke. And there's also a huge backstory to it, which as we talked about earlier, has become more clear as time has gone on, which is that she really wanted to veer outside a little bit further from the sound that they created on Animal. She wanted to move a little bit out of the dance poppy lane and more into like an overt rock record and rock aesthetic. He nixed that essentially and was like, no, like you cannot abandon the sound that we created on this first record. So when you listen to Warrior, do you hear just another iteration of the same formula again? Or are there things we can point to as sort of a sonic evolution from the first record? I think there are quite a few things that are different in terms of the poppier stuff i mean there are just more guitars on this record even a song like die young i think it's like there's still the guitar sound it's just heavily processed i hear your heart beat to the beat of the drums oh what a shame that you came here with someone so while you're here in my arms let's make the most of the night like we're gonna die young she also seemed to take a lot of the criticism that she quote-unquote can't sing to heart and so she's singing more on this record a little less rapping even on the big dancey stuff like the production seems a bit warmer not as like mm. the acid stuff they were right. talking about with animal and then like you can definitely see that tension with her wanting to go the rock direction because what she said about this album was like she, she wanted to do like 70s rock Led Zeppelin like ACDC and stuff and it's kind of like the first half of it is pop hits right. EDM stuff like there's definitely a dubstep -y and daft punk type things in the first half People. I see you in the club show and catch the love thing tripping on them And then track seven is a collaboration with Iggy Pop. She's working with the Strokes. So there's definitely attempts at rock here and you can see what her intentions are. And you can see that there is an imperfect attempt to accommodate those things, mm. but that there's not necessarily a super consistent approach throughout the record. And I do think that in comparison to the singles on the first album, some of these are just, they feel a little bit more generic to me, less of the crazy, the personality-filled voracious delivery that she had on Animal. Yeah. So speaking of those singles, the first of those is a song we referenced earlier called Die Young. So Die Young does, I guess, somewhat attempt to marry the sort of like slightly more rock aesthetic that she might've been going for with the Dr. Luke sound. I mean, there's live guitars on it. It's co-written with Fun's Nate Roos, who had just, I guess, had like a series of quote unquote rock pop hits. I hear your That song becomes like kind of the sole hit from that record. 
I remember it got kind of nuked because of the shooting at, San, is it Sandy Hook? Sandy Hook, yeah. Yeah, like the notion of Die Young felt like it was inappropriate to play on the radio. And then Warrior's commercial fortunes tank from there, right? I mean, she ne- she doesn't have another hit from that record. Yeah, and I, I was looking at it and it was like, yeah, Die Young did really well, but it got pulled from radio because of the Sandy Hook shootings. And then it just seems like after that, and I don't really know why, they released singles, but I either right around when the album released or even after that. So it wasn't like a very traditional rollout where you have like four singles that come out and then finally the album. The strategy just wasn't there. And so I think that's a large reason that it was more of a commercial flop. I wonder if it also undergirds like some of the tension that was going on. Like, I remember her eventually saying, like, I don't like Die Young, or I got forced to sing that song, or there was some element like, where she sort of admitted post the Sandy Hook pulling of it from radio stations that, like, she didn't want to sing the song to begin with. It was kind of like the seams in the relationship with Luke, I felt like were starting to show, and I wonder if there was a lack of sort of unified strategy, and also that her passion for the project was limited by the fact that she had been hemmed in on, like, what she wanted to do. Which is interesting, because as you said, on this record, there are elements of experimentation and other guises that are sort of fun. As you said, there's a song with Iggy Pop that sounds pretty radically different, I feel like, from the sort of dance pop songs. There's a song that is heavily indebted to The Strokes' Last Night. And even on some of the dance pop tracks, one of my favorite Dr. Luke era Kesha songs is Come On, which was the second single, which almost has a country twang to it that like a little bit points to potentially where she might be going. Yeah, definitely. I think that's what I meant with the sort of like warmer production. I am picking yes, up on totally. the country stuff. My vibe, and I could be wrong, I'm obviously totally speculating, is that some of the undergirding tensions about creating the record and in their relationship boiled over into the promo of this album. And maybe the Sandy Hook thing just sort of was like a breaking point or something. John Seabrook profiled Dr. Luke for The New Yorker and I think had detailed in that profile the tensions surrounding Kesha and Dr. Luke where she wanted to go rock and then he said no and they were just finding her hard to manage euphemistic kind of Mm. way of saying that and so they had already written her off as someone who maybe wouldn't be as loyal as some of the other singers. Yeah, that's really interesting. I did find just talking quickly about some of the little nods at like what you could have seen this record being had it been more under her control. There are certain records here that illustrate some of her more hippie, sort of like open-hearted, free-loving sort of vibe that I feel like is really humongously important that you didn't get a lot of on Animal. Like there's this ballad called Wonderland, which is like absolutely beautiful. I thought super stripped down, live drums, no auto-tune, very personal lyrics that felt like it could have been on a country album. Ain't it funny how time flies, fades into gold. Yeah, definitely. And you definitely get more of those types of ballads in her later post 
Luke songs. She's so compelling in multiple different modes. In the mm. rock stuff, just the way she yelps, like all the personality yeah. that she invested in her auto-tune rapping, she still invests in the big rock star delivery. And then in the country stuff, obviously she has this like exquisite voice. Mm, she can really sing. That's the thing. Like nobody knew that. That was what was so crazy. Like listening to a song like Wonderland is, you know, now we know that she can really sing because we've heard her later records. But like at this point, no one had really heard her voice just kind of unadorned. She's a great singer. Yeah, she's incredible. So, you know, she can do a lot of different modes. Uh, and it, yeah, I guess it was cool that some of it was teased on this record. It was unfortunate that it was such a battle maybe to display the various facets of her. So after this record comes out, as we said, it has its one sort of big hit with Die Young that's kind of cut short by what we were talking about. Most of the other singles don't perform that well. Come On, I think, peaks at number 20 something. And then basically from there, the record sort of disappears. It doesn't replicate the success of the debut nearly at all. She has one last Dr. Luke hit on the Pitbull song Timber, which like again is like sort of a fusion of country and EDM. It's going down. I'm yelling timber. You better move. You better dance. Let's make a And then Kesha's career reaches its hugest pivot point, which is that she essentially files these lawsuits where she accuses Dr. Luke of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. And kind of an explosion. I mean, can you talk a little bit about what those accusations were to the extent you know what they are and how that reverberated through kind of pop culture at that moment? Yeah, I mean, some of the allegations were like that he had drugged her on a plane and taken advantage of her, that he called her a fat fucking fridge and just generally totally sent her into a spiral and self-loathing where she suffered from an eating disorder and then she had to go to rehab, giving her virtually no freedom or autonomy as an artist and then kind of being locked in this terrible contract. Her fans around like 2013 launched this petition to free her from his reign oversight because they sort of sense that she is unhappy in this dynamic. The lawsuit goes public and that's just what she is battling for a long time because he's countersuing for defamation. Other artists support her publicly and give money to the legal fund but I think he has financially an upper hand. I feel like it's important to note that and this speaks to you know some of the other artists we know that are still working with him today. Dr. Luke signs his artists into these really intense contracts where he is required to produce something like six or seven songs per record. So one of the issues here is that while Kesha is leveling these pretty intense accusations against him, that would make sense why she would not want to be working with him on future music. She's contractually obligated under this deal to only release records that contain a certain number of songs produced by him. So she's in this kind of horrific bind. While this arbitration is going on, she actually is like unable to release new music because of this particular clause in her contract, which is like, feels just like absolutely like a horrific thing to experience. Right. And then the sort of argument from the Dr. Luke camp is none of the things that Kasha is claiming is true. She just wants to not fulfill her promise as to contributing like music and like fulfilling her record obligations. Right. Like they chalked it up to some of the more creative conflicts they might have had creating Warrior essentially. Like mm-hmm. that. 
she yeah. felt like she was hemmed in artistically. You know, right. how does this reframe or like rejigger who Kesha is in public imagination? I mean, as we've laid out, she had this very clear kind of defined persona as this rebellious, be yourself, party girls, no frills, leader of the underdog, someone that was really like, you don't need to be anything glitzy or glamorous or rich or whatever to like have fun and to mean something or be meaningful in public imagination. So like, how does this all coming out as having been going on beneath the surface during all of that early success. Does that rejigger who Kesha is to people in their minds? I think people start to have a hard time stomaching the party girl image because so many of the alleged accounts of abuse occur in kind of like a party setting or it's like he gives her substances and there just seems like mentally to be kind of too much overlap between this hedonistic, alcohol-filled excess that she's describing in her songs and then the circumstances in which the alleged abuse happen. And then also people start to question, you know, how much of this image is just something that Dr. Luke fabricated or like put on to Kesha as something that she wanted herself. Later on, she would say that you know, it was kind of hard for her to make the decision to go back to more upbeat pop-oriented songs because she felt like she had to publicly project a kind of somber image mm. and so when rainbow comes out her first i mean i guess we technically say like post dr luke album but it's not really because he's not necessarily working with her directly but he still gets something out of the she's still signed to his label but he waves the i have to produce half this record clause that's how she's able to go back to making music at some point during this so she goes away for five years she's unable to release music which is an eternity in a pop star's career i mean it's hard to survive that kesha finally releases her first new music since warrior and timber in 2017 it's this ballad called praying and let's be frank like she kind of couldn't release anything else until she released this song right i mean this public saga was so huge in culture and had so come to define her i kind of feel like she didn't have any choice but to really like kind of lean right into it with that first song don't you think yeah because if she had released anything else people would be like why aren't you addressing it like this is the yeah. most kind of direct response that she could have done yeah and it is radically different sounding than anything we had heard from her at that point i mean to me looking back i'm like it's hard for me to remember what my mindset was in 2017 but like the only Kesha I was familiar with was like wake up in the morning feeling like P. Diddy Kesha or even if she dabbled in like some rock stuff or like you know Wonderland I guess we brought up but like this is like very raw vocals no processing they definitely left in vocal takes that were far from perfect and it's like really kind of directly leaning into the Dr. Luke stuff I mean she says like pretty heavy shit like you know some things only God can forgive I mean it's the whole song is essentially like I hope you're praying for your fucking soul on this earth because of what you did you almost had me fooled told me that I was nothing without you oh but after everything you've done I can thank you for how strong I have become Cause you brought the flames and you put me through hell I had to learn how to fight for myself And we both know all the truth I could tell I'll just say this as I wish you farewell I hope you're somewhere praying 
praying I hope your soul is changing Changing I hope you find your peace Falling on your knees Praying It hits you in the stomach yeah, and at the same time, it's like, I mean, she's not literally saying, like, fuck you, I hate you. It's the right. framing of, like, I hope you're somewhere praying is this restrained, and she's taking the, the high road kind of framing of the situation. Mm. It does feel like a very strategic move for someone who is known for being body and having no filter. This is a very intentional shift. Yeah, I find it quite effective. I mean, I don't know how you felt revisiting it but especially when she hits that note after the bridge like it's mm-hmm. really it sent like a chill up my spine And it did feel like a little bit like vindication. I mean, I remember feeling like during the whole five-year interim, like feeling so much for her. Like it was so obvious that she was trapped. She wasn't able to do what she loved. She had become this emblem of victimhood on some level in the eyes of the public. There was a triumphant quality to it, even though it is like a really sad song. Yeah, definitely. But maybe a bit of a red herring for the record. So she then puts out this album, Rainbow, which is, as we said, like her quote-unquote first post-Dr. Luke album although giant question mark around that because he was still her label boss. What's going on on Rainbow? Like how does this reintroduce us to like a kind of a new artist or a completely different version of Kesha? Or how does it bring some of her old elements forward in a new way? Well, it's a very sonically wide ranging album. There are the rock songs. She collaborates with Eagles of Death Metal. There are also a lot of more stripped down kind of acoustic songs. Like the first song on the record is called Bastards. And it's like, contrary to the sort of more provocative title, it's kind of soothing wisdom, maybe to like a younger self, where it's like, don't let the bastards get you down. And it's Mm -hmm. a very sweet song. Don't let the bastards get you down. Oh no, don't let the assholes wear you out. Let the main girls take the crown. Don't let the scumbag screw you around. Don't let the bastards take you down. I thought Casey Musgraves a little bit. Yeah, and a lot of the songs are almost twee, or I felt like she kind of sounded like the Moldy Peaches, Godzilla. What do you get when you take Godzilla to the mall? Scares all the children and shreds all the pillows and knocks over walls. We've got him, which to me sounds something like Post Malone would sing a little mm-hmm. bit. Hundred percent. With a sort of hiccuping cadence. This is a hymn for the hymnless kids with no religion. Yeah, we keep on singing. Yeah, we keep on singing. Flying down the highway, backseat of the Hyundai, bullet to the front. 
learn to let go sounds like more of an upbeat pop thing so it does to me feel like okay here's a woman who has a lot of wide-ranging musical interests exploring those musical interests and although there are upbeat songs on this record it's definitely not a record that's party till we die kind of no but thankfully also isn't praying 14 times which like would have been punishing you could think of this as like an incoherent record because of how many different sounds it brings into the mix but i think because of the backstory of what she's been through and seeing this as sort of like a reclamation of her artistry and who she really is it's really held together in that way to me instead of feeling all over the place it almost feels like she's rediscovering herself and like what she can do as an artist that isn't just this one mode that we've been used to seeing her in and Mm -hmm. i noticed that the first line i think of bastards or one of the first lines is got too many people i have a lot to prove wrong which i thought was like a Mm -hmm. really interesting mission statement for the album because i feel like what this album sets out to do in a sense is sort of say like oh like you really thought i was this one thing you think i can't sing you think i can't write all these amazing songs you think i can't work without dr luke you think i can't da 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 and that's kind of the point of this album more than anything and then on the flip side of some of these like more experimental things that were like presenting different guises of Kesha than we had met before. Whether you're talking about praying, whether you're talking about these kind of twee Casey Musgraves, multi features as songs like Rainbow and like Bastards, you still do get that kind of like brassy, hilarious, middle finger garish up persona on woman, which like in my mind like should have been a bigger smash, which almost like puts the old Kesha persona into like a neo soul context and gives you like Kesha as Amy Winehouse or like Nick Acosta. No vocal processing and like none of the rapping, but you still kind of get that. The chorus is literally, I'm a motherfucking woman. And she like really gives it to you with gusto. So that old Kesha shit was really her and is still present on this record and in a very enjoyable way, I find. I love this record. This record works very, very well for me. How do you like feel about this overall? I feel good about this record. It was really interesting to see all the lanes that she's trying to go down here. It just feels like the record that she also needed to release. So in that sense, I'm also very happy for her. I also feel like we can't escape talking about Rainbow without talking about the fact that she covers her mother's hit with Dolly Parton with Dolly Parton as a duet with Dolly Parton, which feels like a huge kind of full circle moment in her career. Yeah, and it's beautiful. It really is. I cannot get over what a good fucking singer she is. She is a beautiful, expressive, singular voice, like in this way that I guess you do get on some level through the machinery of her first two records, but I love listening to her sing Casey Musgraves-esque ballads. I'm very happy she had the opportunity to showcase the versatility of her instrument on this record. Yeah, and I also, I mean, I like the sincerity too. The sincerity. Yeah, she's a bit of like an old school crooner in a way that runs so counter to this way that like she was characterized in this early period as like a product of robotized pop music she's actually like a pretty traditional singer and writer so rainbow is a critical success 
Praying goes top 20. It's a big cultural moment as there's this huge performance of it at the Grammys, but it certainly doesn't return Kesha commercially to the place that she was prior to the lawsuits. To me, my vibe on this is like this was fan service in a way. Like it's hard for me to imagine a world where Kesha is like a globally conquering pop star in the way that she seemed potentially set up to be in that early period. You know, that's one of the sad, difficult parts of this whole story is that Kesha may still come out victorious in her litigation and may come out victorious in public consciousness, but the years that this took away from her career in terms of just sheer numbers and pop success, she can't ever get back. And I don't, we can never know what her trajectory would have been had she not lost five years following her second album in the heat of her success. We'll never know the answer to that question. But setting her up as a critical darling is an important aspect of this next wave of her career. Because what I could really see moving forward for Kesha is she is an incredible songwriter. She obviously is able to inhabit like lots of different guises. Like there's tons of pass forward for Kesha as a musician. And I think there's a lot of people that do care about her and do like want to keep going on the journey. But I would say this record pretty clearly represents like some in a commercial inflection point that was like inevitable given the circumstances. Like that's my impression of it. What do you see as Kesha's legacy as a pop star? Like where do we see in anything, in music, in the way pop stars operate, in just the landscape today, like where do we see the sort of like legacy and influence of Kesha? Yeah, as I have articulated in the review, it's so in vogue now, or like in the past couple of years, to be performatively stupid. Everyone has just figured out that trying to be smart or trying to play the game of proving your intelligence and competence in some ways yields you nothing and is actually quite exhausting. And through like weaponized incompetence or projected stupidity or whatever, there's like much more playfulness. It's fun. <laughs> there's like, this whole kind of bimbo revival, like a lot of lyrics have moved back towards being more inane. You go on Twitter, there are people always like calling themselves like, a dumb slut and things like that. <laughs> no thoughts had empty as the meme. Mm. The general idea of we are burdened by knowledge and <laughs> let's free ourselves from that to, like not let's not take ourselves so seriously which was kind of her original message in the first place and then from a production standpoint or just more of a musical standpoint the over the top electronics the vocal processing the garishness we keep on returning to this word all of this becomes adopted by a new wave of pop artists and like the kind of hyper pop scene in so many interviews with like hyper pop artists they're like yeah i was listening to kesha in the 2010s <laughs> The satisfaction of pop music they are really attached to, but the extremity of it and the playfulness of it, I think, is something that is captured a lot. And so when you hear her voice like vocoderized into like a croak or whatever, and like all the personality in there, it doesn't seem crazy anymore. It, it seems prescient. So I think that's like also another aspect of her legacy. 
Yeah, and it seems not like something like that we used to think of autotune as like, let me hide that I can't sing. It, it's a musical choice. It's a production choice. It's a it's actually a way to express personality, this over-processing, over-production. Yeah, I love how you brought up like Slater, great example. Even Charlie XCX I thought of to myself, like the way that Charlie XCX in her hyper-pop guises has just blown Sonics out to the most maximalist perspective. Sophie, A.G. Cook, 100 Gex. It all feels like, as we said, one of the defining characteristics of the early Kesha music is just the celebration of tastelessness. That taste is overrated. Taste is actually a hindrance in pop music sometimes. Sometimes the music of today, pop music, sounds too obsessed with taste. Tastefulness is boring. Like, the, the more yeah. tasteless that pop music can be, in some ways, the better. And I think she's a real personification of that. Let's talk about the Pantheon. So I have my thoughts. You said you came in with your thoughts, so I got to hear yours first. Where do you think Kesha fits into the pop pantheon? She definitely is in the sort of mere superstar tier, partially superstar of yore. I mean, the last album in particular didn't really land with audiences, and she's not necessarily charting in more recent years, but Mm -hmm. the impact that she had before will just like stick with people for a long time. And she is so integral to people's memories of the 2010s and still influential in her own way. Yeah, I gotta say, I'm torn between that and tier four. And maybe it'll be instructive for me to just like quickly run through some of these things so we can like make sure we fully hash this out because God knows it would be horrible if we messed this up. Everybody's relying on us to nail this one, cat. So we've got to make sure we don't do anything too crazy. Um, So the only reason I say four is, okay, so here are like some of the requirements for four. Mm-hmm. One to two big albums with three to five hit singles that are recognizable to many people who are not in the artist core fan base. How many bona fide hit singles do you think Kesha really has? Like, looking back. Like, when we look back now at the career, what are the songs she's going to tour on for the rest of her life, do you think? TikTok? Like, the four singles from Animal, from Cannibal, Blow, We Are Who We Are. Oh, Blow. We didn't talk about Blow. Amazing song. Right. All right. So we're at six, right? Mm -hmm. Die Young. Yeah. Die Young. And Uh, Praying, kind of, right? Yes. And Timber. Um, (laughs) Timber. Maybe Woman? Um, no, I don't think we, I think Woman is like a fan fave. I don't think we can count that as like recognizable to people outside of her core fan base. Okay. Right? Yeah. All right. So that's a solid nine. Okay. So that, that kind of elevates her out of this. Or is at least recognizable to people who were of prime age. Yeah, obviously during her moment. It's obvious they have one or two signature songs and it's very clear what they are. I'd say TikTok is like no question her signature song, right? Like. Can mm-hmm. we make an argument for anything else? Mm-hmm. Easily mistaken for other artists? No. I think Kesha's like very distinctive. Like you, there's a sound of Kesha. Yes. Usually not taken particularly seriously by mainstream audiences aside from being points of nostalgia. Uh, it's like half, half. Yeah. I feel like Rainbow, even though it had like a lesser impact than her earlier music, did help reconfigure her in public imagination to some degree as like an artist with credibility. Like it was so yes. critically well received. And, like, Mm -hmm. was popular enough for that to, like, register with people on some level. And I feel like that Grammy's performance of Praying was, like, a really huge moment where people saw a different side of her and, like, accepted that. Mm -hmm. And then for three, one to three albums 
Right, five to ten hits. I think you're right, actually. At least one album that had a major impact with many hit songs, yes. To find or help to find a very specific moment, obviously, yes. Very well known and meaningful to anyone who was prime age during their moment, yes. Beefy arsenal of hits she can sell tour on, yes. Continues to make critically regarded work. We can put the high road aside and say that uh, Rainbow <laughs> fills that missive. If they released yeah. an album today, it would be something most pop fans would be interested in hearing. I think that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. I certainly would be. Me too. Um, <laughs> could plausibly launch a Vegas residency? Maybe. Maybe. I would go. All right, I take it. I'll take it. She's a three. Cool. You good on that? I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so last question before I let you escape my clutches is, what is an underrated Kesha song, preferably something we haven't touched on before that we could send the podcast out on. We have not talked about Dinosaur, which mm. is a really funny song. The cheerleader spelling of the title, the whole conceit of your old get away from me, the sense of humor of you need a CAT scan. You know, it wasn't like a hit, but it's a very clearly identifiable Kesha song. It exhibits all the qualities that her fan base loves about her. Yeah. I love that song too. Great record. So we'll go out on Dinosaur. Kat Zhang, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This was so fun. It really was fun. I like completely enjoyed every moment of this deep dive and getting to talk to you. And like everyone, please go read Kat's review of Animal. It was really genius. And I'm so grateful for you for being on. Okay, that is Pop Pantheon Kesha, a tier three superstar. The judgment is rendered. I want to say a big, big thank you to Kat Zhang for being such a brilliant and insightful guest. Please get on the Apple Podcast Store and leave reviews. The artist that has the most requests in those reviews will get a fast-tracked episode. Please follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram and DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on Instagram and Twitter. Jump in the Discord if you want to talk to some other fun people about pop. Check out our Spotify playlist for this and every episode in the show notes of every episode and on social media. And until next time, guys, have a wonderful life. Bye-bye. Support, seriously.